Welcome. You are listening to the Fat and Furious podcast. In this podcast series, your host, Steve Bennett, father of seven, best-selling author and adventurer, will be joined by 23 of the world's most forward-thinking medical professionals. Doctors, authors and top nutritionists, where he'll share the truth behind living healthier and happier for longer. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Malcolm Kendrick. Malcolm is a practicing GP living in Macclesfield. He's also a three times best-selling author. Two of his books, The Cholesterol Con and The Statin Nation, is a must-read for anyone thinking about taking statins. Malcolm's third book, Doctoring Data, is so insightful that when you next see a questionable newspaper headline about health, you should download an electronic version and it will help you better understand how it was dubiously crafted. Malcolm's area of expertise is in studying the heart and what actually causes heart disease. Malcolm, thanks for joining us in the studio. Lovely to be here. You're looking well and radiant. Well, <laughs> I'm trying my best. I'm trying to use primal health uh, ideas on dieting and my own really to lose some weight at the moment. Um, as my wife says, you know what to do, why aren't you doing it? I said, well, partly because I like drinking beer too much. So this whole week for four days, yeah, four days I haven't had a beer. Good man. And I've been missing breakfast and, and it's been low carving and I've actually lost four pounds in four days. That's brilliant, a pound a day. Yeah, a pound a day, so there'll be nothing left of me. <laughs> I will have disappeared the next time you want an interview. Well, don't forget, we're going skiing together next year. So, yes, uh, uh, no, I'll be you'll, fine. Yeah. You'll be fine. I'll, 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 I'll let you keep up with me. <laughs> so I want to start off with the first question. Tell us a little bit about what led you to medicine and your medical journey so far. Well, I have been asked about why I went into medicine, and I think it's so long, unfortunately, so long ago I've forgotten. No, but I think like most people, you think, you know, it's a good profession, you're doing good, it's interesting, and uh, to a great disagree, yes, that, that's true. I think that I've enjoyed it very much, and, and, I, and, and in a way, a lot of people have said, oh, you're against everything in medicine, aren't you? Because I am quite critical of things. I say, no, no, I'm really supportive of medicine. I... Uh, you know, I think it's a fantastic thing, but where I see that I think it's going wrong, I feel I want to make it better. I think people should say, you know, someone who's critical is not someone who doesn't like you or doesn't want you to improve. It's someone who really likes you and really wants you to improve and wants you to be the best you can be. And I think I'd like I like to believe that's my motivations mm. here, not not some sort of just an iconoclast who says that's wrong and this wrong and I'm right. Yeah. I don't think that's correct. So, so I would say that's my kind of motivations, really. Well, your good friend and my good friend, uh, David Unwin, uh, Dr. David Unwin, says the same. You know, we, we start in medical because we want to help people. And he said to me the other day something lovely. He said his new favourite verb is desubscribing people from yeah. tablets, you know, getting them off tablets and changing lifestyles and so on. Yes. Well, I, I mean, it was, there's a very famous physician from the late 19th century called William Osler. He's actually Canadian, and he's one of these people that writes things and they become sayings, if you like. And so one of the primary duties of a doctor is to stop people taking medicines. Somehow or other, we've lost that. Mm. We've very much lost that. I, I wonder why we've lost it so much. And it's a combination of factors. There's a desire to do something. Mm -hmm. There's a desire to, you know, give people benefit. But, and also I think the, the, the recent move into what we call evidence-based medicine, whereby 
we say, well, this drug definitely works and it definitely everybody should be on it, has led to more and more and more medications. So I would say at the moment, one of the jobs I do is called intermediate care. We're looking after elderly people who have, say, fractured a hip or gone off their legs and we're trying mm -hmm. to get them back home. The average number of medications now is 10.6 a day. Frightening. Um, because I took an audit about two weeks ago. Frightening. That's the average of who, That's though? an average of every patient in the unit. 10.6 oh. medications. Now, that's not one drug a day. That's not 10.6 drugs a day. A lot of them are two or three times a day. Christ so the yeah. average number of tablets they are yeah. swallowing, which I haven't counted, but <laughs> roughly would be in the region of 30. So, so the average patient aged, and these are usually elderly people, over about 75, mm -hmm. the average person of that age is now taking, in my unit, 10.6 different medications. And I do know that in the UK there was a survey which is the average, I think in that population, for the overall population, mm -hmm. is around six to seven different medications. Crikey. So it, and it, and it, isn't it, there something in your guidelines, or certainly years back, that said, you know, you shouldn't, over, you shouldn't have more than five subscriptions? It, it was like never that. a guideline. Guidelines are a kind of recent horrible phenomenon. Right. I mean, you must obey <laughs> the guidelines that are set down. And that's yeah. one of the reasons people are on so many medications. Yeah. But the, the general rule was people shouldn't be on more yeah. than five medications. Yeah. Because if you're on one medication, yeah. you have some idea what it's going to do. Yeah. Two medications, yes. But once the interactions start to evolve, yeah. and you're talking about de-prescribing, there's a study from Israel, which I was talking about recently. They don't call it. Is it de-prescribing? Poly-de-prescribing is the right. term they use. P-D-P. Right. <laughs> I think that stands for something else as well. And um, they, they tried to get patients off as many medications as yep. they could. Yep. And this was done in Israel. And Israel follows America mm -hmm. very closely. So they're on even more medications than we are. And, um, and they did a study where they took people off as many medications as they could manage. And the quality of life improved. Mm -hmm. The mortality rate went down fifty percent. Wow. Hospital admissions went down thirty percent. Wow! Now, if you extrapolate that up, yeah, you know where are we now? Well, if that's true, if the opposite is true, that if you put people on all these medications, you make them worse. Yeah, and 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 something that people don't seem to know or are unaware of is that life expectancy in the UK is now falling. Yeah, I quote this all the time. And yeah. it is falling more in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. Now, is that because of the medications we're giving people? I'm sure it's not entirely that. But I think that it's playing a part. It must be playing a part. If this sure. study is correct, it must be playing a part. And I do think that we have to get away from just rewinding this a little mm -hmm. bit on all the guidelines. All the studies have been on single drugs. Yep. So they said this drug provides 1% benefit or whatever it is, or mm -hmm. this one does 1% benefit, this one's 1% benefit, this one's 1% benefit. Mm -hmm. So we say, if we give them all four, we'll get 4% benefit. <laughs> That's the thinking, or it must be the thinking. Uh, yeah. But no one's ever said, well, we've never done a study where we've added A to B, or yes. A to B to C, or A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Yeah. These studies have never been done. So actually, we have, we have no evidence yep. that, that if we give all these drugs simultaneously, we will achieve benefit. Yep. No one's done the study. I suspect no one ever will. How yep. could you do such a study? Exactly. So actually, evidence has led to, evidence-based medicine has led to unevidence-based medicine. Well, it's led to faith that if one drug's good, 10 drugs will be better. Yeah. Well, well, where's the evidence for that? There is no evidence for that. Well, part of the reason I started Primacure is my own health, but then looking at my dad's health, he's uh, 79, 10 years ago on no medicine. Within 10 years, he's now on nine medicines, and now he's got diabetes type 2. He didn't have it before, and it just goes on and on. Right, I want to 
today really focusing on your book, Doctoring Data. Yeah. I mean, you're recognized as a leading specialist mainly around the heart and your two other books that are amazing, The Great Cholesterol Khan, I cross-referenced many times in Primal Cure, uh, and your book that came out last year, Statin Nation, great reads, especially if you're being told you need to take a statin, then uh, then go to the Primal Living website. We, we, we stock these, we sell these, or you can go to Amazon.com. But I want to not talk about those right now. I want this session to be about what led you to write the book, Doctoring Data. Right. Well, I'll have to name check my son because we sat around a table and I said, I've written this book and I don't know what to call it. <laughs> and we turned it around. He said, I've got an idea. Call it Doctoring Data. And it was a so much obviously a great title, I said. Mm -hmm. Right, that's mine, I thought of it. <laughs> uh, but part of the reason was that you do get these headlines. People will get a headline saying coffee's good for you, coffee's bad for you, mm -hmm. tea's good for you, five cups of coffee's bad for you, sausages cause cancer, <laughs> red meat's is bad for you, smoking. And you think, well, people are just, I know a lot of people are like, well, this is just getting ridiculous. Yeah. Can you not make, A, can you not make your mind up? And B, yeah. what does it mean? Am I being frightened of things? Yeah. And I thought, well, people don't understand, have no real way of understanding this stuff. So when someone says, um, sausages increase your risk of bowel cancer by 20%, that's a headline. What does it mean? If you deconstruct that, what does it mean? Now, then unfortunately, of course, then people's eyes glaze over because even myself, although I understand the principles very well, as soon as you start putting a little sigma sign in an equation or A plus B over dy yeah. dx, and I sort of think, oh, I can't understand it any longer. So I, I've stayed away from any of that type of work, but just saying to people, what are the principles here? Mm -hmm. So what does 20% reduction mean? Mm -hmm. and, um, and if you ask people this question, I mean, doctors don't know this. Yep. They did a study of, uh, I'll not remember the exact figures, but I'll get the mm -hmm. general gist here, mm -hmm. where they said that if you do cervical cancer screening, it reduces the risk um, um, by 30% of getting, of getting cervical cancer. So then asked, well, what does that mean? They said, well, if you do a 1,000 screens, 300 women will be saved from cervical cancer because mm -hmm. that's 30%. So do a 1,000 screens, that's 30%. And you go, no, no, that's so far away from what the actual truth is. Yes. It turns out to be something in the order of if you did, uh, if you, you would have to do, and I think I calculated this, 56,000 screens, mm -hmm to detect one cancer earlier than you would have otherwise Crikey. done, all right? Crikey. People say, well, how can this figure be so yep. different? Yeah. A very simple example would be, uh, to an extent, if you want to win the lottery, I can double your chances of winning the lottery right now. Mm -hmm. You go, how do you do that? Well, buy two tickets yes. instead of one. I've just doubled yeah. your chances. But instead of being one in 36 point whatever million, yes. it's now in one in 18 million. So, so, the, so, so the, change, the change is one in 18 million. Yes. So I've doubled, in one way I've doubled it, and the other way I've changed it by one in 18 million. So this leads us quite nicely to what yeah. I was going to ask. I was going to ask you to find the best analogy you could think of to explain the difference between absolute percentages and relative. Because right, yeah. that's what you're kind of saying there, isn't it? If you buy two, you've doubled your chance because that's an absolute number. That's is that a right? relative change. That's a relative Rel change. Yeah, no, it's always, it's, it, this is a problem, is I sometimes find myself getting it the wrong way around. No, 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 that's not right, is it? The difference is like between the difference between addition and multiplication. So I use it, if, if this is clear, stop me when I get unclear. Okay. So say you have a clinical study. Yep. And you have 200 people and 100 of them take a blood pressure lowering tablet and 100 take a placebo. Yes. And the trial lasts however long it lasts. It doesn't really matter. At the end of the trial, one person has died taking the blood pressure lowering tablet. Yes. 
and two people have died taking the placebo. Yes. So the difference is one versus two is 50%. So there's yes. a 50% reduction. So that's the relative reduction. The absolute reduction is out of 100 people, 98 of them are still alive taking yep. the placebo, and one of them is still alive taking the blood pressure lowering tablet. Mm -hmm. what, sorry, 99 are still alive and 98 yes. are still alive. So the absolute difference is between 99 and 98 is one. So the percentage absolute difference is 1%, mm -hmm. the percentage relative difference is 50%. So you can see there's quite a difference. So a pharmaceutical company is going to say 50% reduction yes. rather than 1% reduction. Yes. And, and they're allowed to do this. There's mm -hmm. no regulations on how you can present the mm -hmm. results of your trial. But then, of course, if you've got 1,000 people... So let's just be clear trial. on this. Let's yeah. be clear on this. The headline would say, my drug yes. reduces your... It makes it 50% less likely that you're going to get X, Y, you're going to die, yeah, or, or die, die or whatever. Or yeah. whatever it yes. is. But then they flip it the other way around. So that's a relative risk. Yes, 50% relative risk. If yeah. let's, so let's say it saves one life in 100. Yeah. And you write quite lovely in your book that there's no such thing as saving a life anyway because we yeah. all die in the end. It's, yeah. So let's assume one in 100 people live longer because yes. they take the drug. That's right. They write it as a 50% benefit. But let's say 10% of people have serious side effects. They don't then say... Well, if there's a 10% increase... Um, they might say, they, they might present that as one in 10, but even if there's a 50% increase from whatever figure, yeah. they would then present that as the absolute figure. So yes. they do this mismatch outcomes thing. Oh, well, actually, the chances of getting muscle pain only increased by 0.8%. Yeah. All right, or 1.2%. Yeah. Well, actually, what was it in the start? What is that in? And if they made that a relative difference, the relative difference might be 500%. Yeah. But they'll present you with a 1.2 figure. So this mismatched objective. Yeah. So the benefits are used you almost always relative, and the downsides are presented absolute. Yeah. So you're getting a complete mismatch of 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 your your understanding. Oh, there's only a one percent chance of getting <laughs> getting muscle pain, but there's a fifty percent chance yeah. of avoiding heart disease. No, actually, the reality is it's the other way around. Well, that that's yeah. criminal. How in an actual report you use one statistic for the benefit of the drug and the total opposite statistic for the side effects. So yes. you're glorifying the benefit and you're playing minimizing, down, yeah, minimizing yeah, absolutely, that. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I, certainly in doctrine data, you could see your frustration boiling. <laughs> there, there, there is example after example after example yes. how in medical journals this happens. Well, I think uh, it, if I could just jump in here and, and also say that the other thing that they do is, as you say, you can't save a life. But what they will say is, they quite often won't use what they call overall mortality, which means the chance of dying of anything, which is a thing you should really be interested in, because mm -hmm. there's no point in not dying of liver failure and having a 6,000% increased chance of dying of heart disease, because your overall mortality would go up. Yes. So one of the other things they will do is say there was a, using an example of, of a statin, they said there's a 36% reduction in heart attacks. <laughs> All right. Now, I know, and I've spoken to people, that people thought, well, that A is... is you know, the third heading towards a half reduction yep. in heart attacks. Now, you notice there's two words missing here. One is fatal heart attacks, yep. and the other one is overall mortality weren't mentioned. Mm -hmm. So when you dig down into the study, you find that actually there was no difference in fatal heart attacks. Right, zero. Yes. Zero. Okay. And there was no difference in overall mortality. So what they present prevented... So a headline that sounds like yeah. you're a third more likely to die if you don't take it yes. ends up not making any difference to life expectancy. None at all. 
So, so, so one of the things, a general rule I say is if it doesn't mention overall mortality, it yep. didn't change. Yep. If they don't mention fatal anything, there was no difference in death rate from that thing. Mm -hmm. Because if there was, that's what you'd get as the headline. Mm -hmm. So to an extent, one of the things to say to people is, if you don't see it, it's not there. And it's not there for a reason. It's been, it's been redacted from the record. Mm -hmm. and, and, and they get, I don't understand how, but there is no sort of, authority that says you must present your data in the following ways. Now, it is complicated presenting data. There's no doubt about that. It can be difficult to understand because equally there's a time issue involved. Because mm -hmm. if my trial takes one day and has a 50% benefit, that's going to be better than my trial took 15 years yep. and provided that same benefit yep. because it took you 25,000 times longer or whatever to achieve that benefit. Mm -hmm. That's another thing that they never put in yep. is well, how long did it take to achieve that? Mm -hmm. So you give an antibiotic, you might stop somebody dying of meningitis, and that took five days, seven days. Okay, and if they're aged one, then they might get another 80-odd years of life expectancy as yep. well. So there's yep. all sorts of factors, and it isn't easy to present the data. Of you think it would be, oh, like 15 less people died or whatever, mm -hmm. but it's not. But the way they do it is made as deliberately as beneficial to the intervention yep. as is could possibly be imagined with all downsides swept under the carpet. So I think it's to help people to understand when you see a headline and it says, uh, even the other way around, sausages increase your risk of bowel cancer by 50%. Mm -hmm. That sounds terribly worrying, but even if it were true, and it will not be because it's not the right sort of study to prove this, yep. you've still got to say, well, what was your chances in the first place of yes. getting bowel cancer? Well, it's yep. over what period as well? Yep. Over 30 years, 10 years, five years? You know, if it was over a week, it would be serious. If it's yep. over 35 years, it's really not yep. as serious. And yet that's not mentioned either. So you have to, and that's the problem is, <laughs> is like saying, oh, well, do I have to deconstruct every clinical medical headline I see? Well, the answer, unfortunately, at the moment is, well, yes, yes you do. Yeah. But just remember, basic principles. Well, it, before we get yeah. your basic Sorry, principles, because we'll, we'll come right, to some headline, yeah. we've got some newspapers yeah. in front of us. But I woke up with a, 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 like a, an idea in the middle of the night last night, and I've read probably four times Doctrine Data. And like I said, I keep going back yeah. to it every time I, I see a misleading headline. But I'm always taking from you. Yeah. I've used your quotes in my books. You've always given me a lot. I want to give you an acronym back. All right. You ready? <laughs> so I'm going to summarise your book, and you still need to buy it, everybody, but I'm going to summarise it in about two sentences. So you say, what makes a good study? First of all, it must be controlled. You say that... To be controlled, it must be thousands of you know, like-minded or you know, exactly matched people. It's no good having lots of different people in a study. They need to be very similar. Then you say it has to be randomised. In other words, you split it into two different groups, you know, maybe one with the placebo and, and one with the drug. Then you say it has to be interven interventional. So uh, you must change one thing and change one thing only in that study. Um, then I've read later in the book, you said, well, it really needs to be monitored because you can't just ask somebody, what did you eat last week? Or you can't just trust what they say because what people say and do sometimes are different. So it needs monitored, monitoring. And then later in the book, you say, and it all comes down to really, because you can't save somebody's life. It, it's really a bit life extension. And then you teach us about statistics saying that, well, it really does matter whether you're looking at absolute or relative data because you can make them look really great figures or not. So controlled, randomized, interventional, it's got to be monitored, life extension and statistics spells the word crimes. <laughs> and this is a crime against humanity, the way they are misleading us 
with all these newspaper uh, uh, articles. So it's got to be controlled. It's got to be randomized. It's got to be interventional. It's got to be monitored. It's got to extend life. And you've got to use the right statistics. Then every time you see a news headline, because every time I see a news headline, this was in a newspaper this year, statins really do save lives. And we're going to come on to statins in a minute. Uh, and in a future podcast we're going to do together, it's all going to be about how do you, you know, prevent having a heart attack. Um, statins really do save lives. Well, I've always said, and my dad taught me, that if someone says, trust me, it normally means they're lying. So even though the headline says statins really do save lives, probably tells you that statins don't save lives. Um, anyway, I interrupted you there. That's all right. No, no, no. So crimes. Um, so we, you've just explained really well the difference between absolute and relative. And I find it abysmal that there is no laws that say in, the same, in, in one report you can flick from one to the other. And I read an article the other day from the lady that used to be the editor of one of your trade journals. I think it was The Lancet or one of the others. And she said that she, she quit because... You just couldn't believe almost anything that was in their own articles. That was Marcia Angel, who edited the New England Journal of Medicine, which is, they have this thing called impact factor, which is effectively how important is yeah. the journal, how often is it quoted, how difficult is it to get articles in, how respected is it. And, mm -hmm. and the NEGM is the number one wow. impact factor journal in the world. It, it's become that way um, over many years, and she edited it for 20 years. And right. I, I can't remember exact quote, and you can't remember yep. exactly, but it's basically, you know, it is no longer possible to trust the results of clinical trials or the guidelines that come from them. And that's something like, I've reached this conclusion slowly and reluctantly over my 20 years as editor of this journal. And she's not alone in that. The editor of The Lancet, who's not a particular favorite of mine, Richard Horton, has written, medicine has taken a turn towards darkness. Wow. At least 50% of what is published is not true. Isn't that frightening? And the editor of the BMJ, which is, I think, number four journal in the world, who was Richard Smith, has written, you want to read some of his blogs, he basically he's just given up. He said, this is, the state of medical research is, is appalling, it's dreadful, it's terrible, it's got worse since I wrote a, he wrote an editorial 20 years ago saying it's, it's rubbish, the studies themselves are biased, they're... Poorly constructed, then, and, and you know, you, you, you I, I like to believe. I mean, one of the things um, I think, as Richard Horton then said, something has gone terribly wrong with one of mankind's greatest creations, and it's true. This should be one of mankind's greatest creations. It's a reliable database of medical research that mm -hmm. we can turn to and say, we know this is true. We know this is true. This is beneficial. That's not, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and I, I think. And I don't know how to state this without, as you say, crimes, disasters, if there's an acronym, yeah. Yeah. is, is a, what a disaster. I, I can't look at a clinical study anymore and believe it. And I that, can't. And you're a GP. Yeah. That's well, frightening. I, I, well, yeah, but I, I'm more critical than most GPs who tend to say, well, the study showed this and the study showed that. You know, and I, I go to, well, I've asked maybe 50, maybe 100, I don't know how many, but I've asked a lot of doctors just this question, what's the difference between relative and absolute risk? Not one has ever been able to provide the answer to me. Say that again. Not a so, single, so yes. Doctors that read medical research, which we think can be biased by the drug manufacturer in the first place and, and biased by the people that wrote it because they want to get their published paper, the, their papers published. That's how they get more funding for their universities. And it's biased, biased, biased all the way through. And then, even though it's biased all the way through, the doctors that read that medical research that then prescribe the tablets 
none of them really understand the difference between absolute and relative risk is what you're saying? Yes, I've never found one yet. Isn't that I, They've all said, oh, yes, and they said, well, explain it to me, and they yep. can't. Yep. And if you can't explain it almost like that, you don't know what it is. Yep. And they'll sort of, oh, well, it's, um, you know, they don't, they don't know. Actually, they don't know. Yep. They just suddenly realise, I don't know, and you can see that in their eyes and then try and change the subject. I'm just being stroppy, but I think surely it's important. Surely the people prescribing you the drugs should be yep. able to. But but they don't because the reality is that the, the guidelines and what you're told to prescribe comes down, if you like, from above. Yep. I mean, in the UK, we have a thing called the National Institute of Healthcare and Clinical or whatever it's called nowadays. Nice. Excellent. Nice. Yeah. Which I actually set up the website for them many years did ago. You? Yeah, I did. <laughs> uh, but uh, it started out as a National Institute for Cost Effectiveness. Really? Yes, it right. did. And they thought that doesn't sound very good. So then it became the National Institute for Clinical Effectiveness. And then it became the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, which is like right. something out of the Soviet Union. <laughs> ah, yes, comrade, you have the, the great Lenin uh, Award for Clinical Excellence. You know, I mean, it, it, it's just words that mean nothing. Yeah. But essentially, they're supposed to look at the data and then decide, is this worth prescribing or mm -hmm. not? And then you find, well, the last time they did the NICE guidelines, eight out of the ten people on the committee had had... Conflicts of interest with the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. And they're not supposed to have any, but they did. Yeah. And then that, the, the data that they use. Well, can I just expand on that for yeah. a second? Because in your book, Doctrine Data, the bit that, that just <coughs> resonated most for me on that exact same subject, you said that for, so we talk about a lot about cholesterol, and some people believe cholesterol causes heart disease. We'll talk about this in another show, whether it does or doesn't. Um, but they said for, you know, every time, if you could get the guidelines to reduce a little bit of how, what, your bad cholesterol should be, every time it reduces, it creates billions of revenue for the industry. And in the book, you talk about the panel of the nine judges that, that or medical professions that got together to say, yes, you need to lower it. With the exception of the chairman, the nine people on the panel, every single one of those was funded by multiple different, or they were taking funds from multiple different drug manufacturers who manufacture statins. Yeah. Isn't that, that, that frightening, though, that that we keep getting told we've got to have lower and lower and lower, lower cholesterol so they can sell more and more statins, and yet the people that made that decision in America, and we sadly follow in the UK normally, was a panel full of people funded by the drugs company. That's immoral, it's insane, it's ridiculous. And just to expand on that story, thank goodness I got into this as an industry, and thank goodness I met you, and thank goodness I listened to a TED talk, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, because in my annual medical, which I have to have because I work every year and I know we have different, well, there's lots of different opinions whether you need annual medicals. In my annual medical this year, my doctor, who is a brilliant doctor, I've had the same lady, Dr. Kellerman, for 20 odd years, I go every year for 20 odd years, she said, you've got to start taking statins. And I went, excuse me, she said, you've got to start taking statins. I said, why is that? She said, well, your cholesterol is, I said, uh, against what number? She said, well, these are now the guidelines. I went, right, do you want me to tell you about how those guidelines came in place? Uh, and, uh, and I said, well, if I was to take them, would they work? She said, well, of course they would work. I said, okay, uh, what about the numbers needed to trust? And she said, treat, treat. numbers need to treat, you, not trust. Yeah, yeah, so you, you should be able yeah, to trust, trust yeah, yeah. So there's a figure, you're gonna, this, is gonna, this is gonna blow your mind at home if you're, whether you're watching it on our webcam or whether you're listening to it on the podcast. I was listening the other day to a TED talk just before I had my medical, uh, and it was a, a Daniel Levitin. And this, this clip on TED Talk has been uh, watched 14 million times, thank goodness. And he said the numbers needed to treat for one positive outcome with a statin are 300. Let me explain what that means. That means 299 people that go on statins for life get no benefit whatsoever. 
And he said, this has been ratified by Bloomberg.com. And yet the side effect is you know, lots and lots of people have a negative side effect. The bit that gets me, Malcolm, is if I went to a doctor without all this knowledge that I've gained from, from studying this area, and they said, take a statin, I would assume the benefit must be a benefit. Yes. Yes. Well, 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 you would be told 36% this and 42% that. That's, that's what they're told. Yeah. It's frightening, isn't it? I mean, uh, I mean, again, this number needed to treat thing. The problem I have with the, the T for treat is you're not treating. You are delaying at mm -hmm. best. Um, so the NNT, and I know a lot of people use it, a lot of people like it, and I've, I've, I've had a few... A few, a few drink fuel discussions on this in my past. <laughs> I said, if you take an antibiotic to treat a chest infection, you're treating it, it's gone, it's cured, it's, yes. it's gone away. Yes. If you're, if you're giving something to stop somebody dying from a heart attack or a stroke or whatever, you're, you're not, you're, you're, what are you treating? They don't have one at the moment. Right. You're trying to stop them having one. Mm -hmm. So what does the T mean to treat? Well, actually, does it mean prevent? No, because the vast majority of people who take a statin will have the thing that we're going to have anyway. In your case, we use that figure of 300. That means 299 people are going to get no benefit. One person is going to get a benefit. The benefit is that they will live longer, that one person, how much longer? The answer to that is we don't know because no one's done the study, but it actually has been looked at. And if you look at uh, what they call primary prevention in statins, which is before you've had a heart attack or diagnosed heart disease, to stop primary means stop the primary event mm -hmm. happening. Secondary means you've already had an event. Some people have put this into low risk and high risk, but again, everybody confuses everything to make everything difficult to understand. So, but essentially, taking this down to its uh, to, 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 to the basics, what they found is if you took a statin for primary prevention, that means to stop a heart attack or stroke, or there are other things. If you took it for five years, which is the length of the average clinical trial, the average increase in life expectancy that they could find, and this is the most positive studies they could find, was three days. So if you took a statin for five years, you would gain three days or 0.75 of a day a year. Now that is probably not going to even happen to most people because this is an averaging out. Yep. Again, this is why it's difficult to explain these things. However, if you said to most people, so say you took it for 30 years, that would be like 60, 18 days or something. Yep. 18 days, well, that's half a month for taking it for 30 years. Yeah, and that assumes the benefits carry on beyond the end of the clinical trial. We don't know, yeah, because at the end of the clinical trial, the clinical trial ends. Yeah, and it assumes that it won't cause longer-term damage. As somebody said to me, if you smoked for five years, you would find no increase in lung cancer risk. You have to smoke for longer than that before it causes lung cancer. So stopping a trial on a drug that could be damaging after five years, and then saying if you take it for the rest of your life, there's no possibility of damage occurring. <laughs> you yeah. don't know. Yeah. Again, this is yeah. evidence-based medicine where yeah. most of your evidence is missing. Yeah. They have extended trials and looked at people who've carried on taking the statins once the trial's ended, and it doesn't appear that there is terrible harm occurs. I, I think that's correct. Mm -hmm. But the problem I have, again, you get this healthy user benefit, which is another reason why you have to carry out clinical trials in a controlled fashion. At the end of a trial, say only half the people carry on taking the tablet. They tend to be more health-conscious they won't drink as much, they won't smoke, they won't do this, they won't do that. So you've already selected out a healthy group of people and then said, oh, look, they've been, they're healthier. It must have been the statin that did it. No, that's a behavioral thing. Mm -hmm. but they, they went back and looked at studies that were done on pre-statins that lowered cholesterol level. And they said, oh, look at the benefits. And then someone said, for people who, who continue to take the tablet, and you say, yeah, but those benefits 
were also seen in the placebo arm. Mm -hmm. So actually, if you regularly and uh, take the placebo, your benefits are the same as if you regularly take the statin. <laughs> it's not the taking of the tablet, it's the regularity, and therefore it's a behavioral thing yes. that you're looking at. Yep. So you're, again, you have decided that that doesn't count, mm -hmm. yeah, and you say, well, why do you carry out placebo-controlled trials? It's to get rid of these biases, yep. and then once you've got rid of the bias, once the biases are back in the trial, yep. you then use the data to try and prove your point. So yep. they have it every way round, yep. if you like. If that makes sense, does that yeah, make that sense That makes a lot of sense. And, and is there a danger? So. First of all, yeah, and I, I totally get this, that statins probably don't, yeah. It, it, well, if I was to take statin and hope that would solve a high cholesterol, even, yeah. if, even if high cholesterol was a problem, which many of us don't believe is a problem, um, is there a danger then? So those 300 people taking a statin because yeah. their doctors told them they've got high cholesterol, 300 people, only one of which will get a benefit. Is there a danger, though, that those 300 people will rely on the medication to solve their problem rather than make a lifestyle change? Therefore, it's really dangerous to say, well, yeah. is it dangerous to hide these numbers needed to treat? Is it dangerous to, to confuse these two different absolute and relative stati yeah. uh, uh, statistics? Is it really dangerous? Because really, what most people need is a lifestyle change. Well, I entirely agree. There has been some papers have been some papers looking at this issue, and it's clear that people who end up on a statin, they reduce their exercise, they take less healthy decisions in their life. It's like, well, I don't need to bother, I'm, my life is saved. Mm -hmm. And it's not true for everyone, but it's definitely an effect. Mm -hmm. It definitely exists. And yes, if you look at other, other interventions such as, as um, losing weight or mm -hmm. taking exercise or stopping smoking or doing other things, they're far, far greater. The NNTs would be, I don't know, even if you believe in the T. Yeah. They're down in the 10s and 5s and 20s. Yeah. So, yes, there, there definitely is uh, an unexamined and almost ignored by the mainstream view, which is just get people to go out and do healthier things. Yeah. Absolutely. Because the benefit will be magnitudes greater than anything a statin, even if it does provide that. Because the other problem with statin trials is, as with all trials, before the year 2005, there was really very little control on a number of factors in clinical studies, one of which was, if it was negative, did you publish it? Mm -hmm. Well, the answer is no, you didn't. Is it true that they found uh, there was some research done to try and prove one thing by the pharmaceutical company, and it proved completely the opposite? So they buried the research in somebody's garage, or the, the, the leader, that, that, got yeah, buried that, in the that, garage, and yeah. then their son found it 20 that, years that, later or something. This was, uh, I think, of the Minnesota Coronary Experiment done from 19... I'm such a geek, I can remember these things. <laughs> <laughs> it's my life. <laughs> I have nothing else. <laughs> Give me this. 1968 to 1973 trial carried out where they, sub, they substituted saturate, saturated fats with polyunsaturated fats. Okay. And it did lower the cholesterol level by 19%, I think. And it, was, it did exist as, a, as an effect. And guess what? It increased the risk of dying of heart disease. And for every one... Um, millimole, if you, if you manage to reduce, uh, which is larger than they looked at the state, so you use a different measurement, but if you reduce the cholesterol, the more you reduce the cholesterol, the greater the risk of dying of heart disease. So the opposite to what the they wanted to show. The opposite to what they wanted to show. It was then never published. And what the son of one of the lead investigators, somebody was speaking to them and said, oh, I've got, I still think I've got that data in my garage because my dad kept it all in like magnetic tapes or whatever. <laughs> and they found it and they read the tapes and they got the data out and they published it. Yeah. 19, 2015, British Medical Journal. 
which said, well, actually, you know what? This completely contradicted everything. So polyunsaturated fats increased, lowered the cholesterol and increased the risk of dying of heart disease. Now, everyone is told to eat polyunsaturated fats and not eat saturated fats. And then the fascinating thing about that study is the lead, the lead, lead investigator was a man called Ansel Keys, mm-hmm. who more than any other individual promoted the saturated fat is bad for you diet. Mm-hmm. Uh, hypothesis, the diet heart hypothesis, he did the research, completely contradicted everything he's saying, and in true scientific method, he said, well, I'm not publishing that then, and buried it. And that is, unfortunately, how many other studies like that were buried? Well, I don't know. Well, Uh, How will we ever know? I personally, you know, there's been some very evil people in the world, uh, in certainly the last 200 years, you think of Hitler and, and, and people like that. Uh, and and actually, I put Ansel Keys up there, and I know if his, any of his family ever get to watch this, I'll probably get sued. But yeah, yeah he's, a, he's a guy you that can't that, libel dead people. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm safe there. Um, he, he did live till he was a hundred. Did he? Yeah. Well, that's because he probably didn't follow his own advice. Well, well, there is some evidence, and it's I've been trying to track this down for years. He went and ended up living in Italy, which mm-hmm. is where he did his original night heart work. Yeah. And I have had a number of people say to me, and we're looking for this thing. He actually changed his mind and tried to write stuff contradicting what he'd been promoting okay. and was never allowed, never got it published, couldn't get it published. Wow. And now, just those I, I'm putting day. that out as, this, this, this currently goes as a hearsay, but I've heard it from people that I trust to know this stuff. And the problem is an awful lot of stuff has just been hidden. A yeah. bit like this data was hidden. Yeah. In my first book, I wrote about yeah. the reasons why Ansel Keys did this study in the first place, written yeah. by one of his mates, Henry Blackburn, who said, Basically, he was a British posh guy, took the piss out of him at the first World Health Organization meeting, saying, listen, young fellow, my lad, you know. And um, he was so stung by this, he went out to prove them wrong. Now, as a motivation for science, that is exactly the exact opposite of what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. And I think the words were he was so stung by this rebuke that he went out to prove mm-hmm. Sir Bufton Tufton, or whatever he yep. was called, wrong. All right. And yep. then the next time I looked for this piece of information on the site, it had gone. Right. All right. Amazing. Well, we'll talk about missing information in a moment because uh, I'm going to bring Wikipedia yeah. on. But just so you understand what Malcolm's talking about, Ansel Keys in the 50s, uh, was it Nixon had a heart attack? Who was president? No, it was Eisenhower. Eisenhower, sorry, had yeah, a heart before attack. Before Nixon. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sorry, of course. Uh, <laughs> president Eisenhower had a heart attack. Uh, he was out of the Oval Office for like two weeks. And the whole country was trying to scratch their head about why has he had a heart attack. Right at the time, Ansel Keys had got this review and he said it is saturated fat and cholesterol that causes heart attacks. And because they were so desperate to uh, find a solution, it widely became adopted almost overnight. And now today, of course, we know saturated fat isn't bad for us. And we really believe it's got nothing to do with cholesterol uh, while we have heart attacks. And, and that really was the changing point for diet, for uh, what yeah. we started to eat, the food advice in America, the food pyramid, the eat well plates in the eat well plate guidelines by our government in the UK. You can track all of these back to one man, Ansel Keys, yeah. and his fake research. And when I say fake research, uh, he, he said there are seven countries that prove saturated fats are bad. The thing is, he chose seven countries out of something like 21 or 22 that he studied. The rest actually proves either didn't back that up or some of them are contradictory. So he just selected the research he wanted to tell us that saturated fat was bad. And now, of course, we learn it's got nothing to do with saturated fat at all. Yes. Um, I mean, I think I, I, I agree with you that if, if what, what he did 
and the advice that he's given uh, will have resulted in probably tens of millions of people dying prematurely. You can't escape from that fact. Yeah. I try to personally be more kind of, oh well, kind of mistake any idiot could make kind of thing. <laughs> but I mean, his was, I mean, yeah. I, think, I don't think he was an evil man. I think he wanted to do good, but he did that thing that scientists do. Yeah. They just get trapped with their own ideas. Yeah. Then they create an entire world they around it. They fall in love with their they own ideas. They fall in love with their own ideas, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and he just was passionate. I mean, I wish yeah. I had the ability to change the world <laughs> thinking the way he had. <laughs> Um, well, then maybe, the, uh, maybe there'd be no more statins. Well, there were. There but of be. course, you can't do that anymore yeah. anyway, Malcolm, because let's think about this. Uh, when we met four or five months ago, um, that day you came to my office and said, uh, I've just disappeared off Wikipedia. So <laughs> let me tell you, there's a statin industry out there that want to keep this man quiet because he doesn't really believe in statins, and, and, and nor do I, to be quite honest. And uh, uh, But it's a, what is it? Twenty billion industry every year, or nineteen billion well, industry every year. It's or, changing its focus, but it was the, the 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 total amount of statin sales reached close to probably reached a trillion dollars. A trillion dollars. Yeah. The day you came into my office, you went, "I've disappeared off Wikipedia." I think mm. I might even have a copy of that page at the time. How can a top-selling author who has written three books, two around the heart and cholesterol and statins? One around Doctrine Data, stand, who stands up for you and I, so we're not fed a bunch of lies when it comes to certain medicines. He's disappeared off Wikipedia. So I think you could be the complete opposite to Ansel Keys eventually, but you can't these days because, because you get silenced. Yes, well, wiki, wiki silence. <laughs> wiki silence. <laughs> no wiki leaks anymore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, well... Uh, were, you flattered yeah. or, uh, were you flattened or frightened by well, taking quite, off? I was quite flattered to be considered important enough to be considered <laughs> an enemy of the state comrade. You know. Isn't that great, though? A yeah, GP yeah. from Cheshire Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I am, yes, I was... Uh, well, yeah, actually, yeah, I didn't know I was on Wikipedia. I have to be... Uh, <laughs> uh, until someone said, you're about to be removed. In fact, on my blog, they said, and we're writing things saying, what are you taking off for? And um, Wikipedia works in mysterious ways. It's kind of become a beast that's lost control. Yeah. And people with specific interests um, can effectively, if they've been on Wikipedia for a while, just editorialize you out of the world. Yeah. And there's another thing called rational wiki, I believe, which is basically trying to say we are the rational scientists. And I've got, uh, I, I do have, um, uh, 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 I do exist on that, but basically saying that, that, that I'm stupid, I'm ugly, you know, I hate babies and I, and I shoot Shoot, shoot bunny rabbits and squash kittens. Well, we know that's not true. And um, stuff, it's just nonsense they made up. It's not quite that bad, but it is ridiculous stuff. You know, quotes taken out of context, you try and tell a joke, which is clearly a joke, and they say, and he has said this, you know. <laughs> yes, I know, I said, it was, it's this thing we humans call humor, where yeah. I say something yeah. in a slightly facetious or ironical way, and you think, aha, that's quite funny, I like it. And they say, this is what he really believes. And you think, well, I can understand why politicians mm -hmm. never say anything interesting anymore, because mm -hmm. you say something as a joke or just an off the cuff, yeah. and and then that becomes your defined thing. Yeah. You know, it was the the treasury, the guy in charge of the treasury for Labour wrote a little note saying, "There's no money left." Yeah. I mean, to to, you know, to the yeah. incoming chancellor. I mean, yeah. that's a joke. Yeah, it's clearly a joke, yeah. and now it's used to yeah. beat the Labour Party over yeah. the head with. 
And the he wrote, there's no money yeah. left. Like, but people are misquoted all the time. I mean, yeah. Prince Charles, before I met him, I thought, well, he's, he's always slow. He's yeah. going to be king one day, but he's really slow. And then I, uh, the first time I met him at Clarence House, he was, uh, no, fil- no filming, all your phones away, no yeah. note-taking. And you listen to him, and he's fast, and he's articulate, and he's quick. And you think, well, why on earth is he, does he always come yeah. across so slow when he's in the media? Because if you take, say one thing wrong, you get taken out of context. Yes. Anyway... I want to, and I, I think there is hope for the next generation, because I hate that statistic that my children's uh, generation are most likely to have a, a smaller life expectancy than mine. It's just wrong. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a lot to have been over-medicated. But I think there is hope. And first of all, I think there's hope because a lot of the people that wrote a lot of these fake results are, are dying off and therefore die, with them goes their false and wrong hypotheses. Um, but there are more people now uh, public health collaboration last week, the, the, the conference starting to stand up just like, like yourself and, and say, look, you've got to make these changes. Yes. Well, as you you, you yeah. became interested and now it's it's your passion mm-hmm. and you're making noise. Mm-hmm. I think uh, what I found is it seems to be anyone with a brain uh, who's come at this not from being in, in, inculcated as mm-hmm. a doctor, if you like, as a medic, yeah. seems to go, well... I, I, Yes, clearly this is nonsense. Yeah. So, and then they think, well, well, it can't be nonsense because look at all these people who are saying it's not nonsense. I mean, there is this thing of peer pressure and approval, which is hugely powerful. That an idea gains. I mean, medicine has has had its more than its fair share of really stupid ideas that everybody believed in. Mm-hmm. One of them was bed rest following a heart attack, which was introduced. There's a chap called Herrick who, who described the first non-fatal heart attack in 1913 in the States. Having described the first non-fatal heart attack, he said the treatment should be strict bed rest mm-hmm. based on absolutely nothing at all. Right. He just decided <laughs> that would be a good thing to do. Right. That became the treatment, yeah. the treatment. You could not move. Yeah. If you had a heart attack yeah. and you were in hospital, you were told to stay lying flat in bed for six weeks. Don't move a muscle. If you need to have a poo, here's a tray. Yeah. That's one of those horrible things you put under. Yeah. If you need a pee, here's a bottle. Yeah. If you need anything, you need sheets changed, you must not move a muscle. Right. So this went on from 1913 to about 1960-something. Yeah. And uh, this, will, this will have killed hundreds of millions of people. Lying right. flat in bed, immobile, immobile for six weeks, yeah. will definitely cause you to have a deep vein thrombosis. Yeah. A number of them will break off and cause a pulmonary embolism. Yeah. Also, your heart deteriorates in function. It, it was deadly. It was the most deadly thing you could do. Yeah. And for years and years, we did it. There's a man called Bernard Lowen, really fantastic guy, brilliant. If you get a chance to look at his blog, it's mm-hmm. like literature and science, and it's yeah. fantastic. And he, he at one point said, well, I think that these guys, because many guys, should sit up at the end of the bed, at least be able to sit in a chair, because lying flat, they just feel helpless, yeah. trapped, hopeless. Yep. depressed, it's killing them. Yep. So he got them to sit up in the end of their beds yep. and the, the doctors from other parts of the hospital sent medical students around with coffins on their shoulders <gasps> saying, murderer. Murderer. Wow. So that's the kind of level that you that's get. That's what you're up against. That's what time. you're up against is, you know, this was based on nothing at all yeah. and it became standard treatment. Wow. And if you dared to question it, yeah. You were called a murder. I'm surprised he still maintained his job. I'm surprised they didn't just get rid of him. Yeah, I think that would have happened nowadays because they seem to be more brutal in just wiping people <laughs> out. But he didn't. Yeah, he got a Nobel Prize, Bernard Lowen. He's oh. written. He 
and he invented, I think he invented the defibrillator, but I might be wrong in this. He was a fantastic genius. And he questioned other things. When the first coronary artery bypass grafts were brought along, in a way, you take a blocked artery out of your heart, you stick a vein in to bypass it. And he said, well, is this actually doing any good? Well, it was considered it must be doing good. You've got a blockage. Yeah. Because if you have a block, the, the main artery in your heart is called the left anterior descending. And that gives blood to the left ventricle, which is the main one that pumps the blood around your body. Mm-hmm. So it's the, it's the big one. If you had a big blockage in that, you know what they used to call it? The widow maker. Wow. That was called a widow maker. And so if you did a, put dye in and you saw a widow maker, and then you said to a patient, well, do you want an operation or not? They go, operate. Yeah. So he couldn't do a study because he couldn't find a control group. Yeah. Because every time anyone found one of these things, they had an operation. You don't want to. So you had no you, control. You didn't want to hang you about. Had no randomization. You had yeah. none of the things you yeah. need in a clinical trial. Yeah. But what he managed to do is through taking blood tests and doing ECGs and a couple of other tests, non-invasively, he knew he could say you've you've got a blockage. Mm-hmm. And so he managed to find enough people over the years to say is it better to be medically treated or surgically treated to have the cabbage. And what he found was it didn't do any good. It was worthless as an operation. And in fact, many people who had the operation ended up having strokes and heart attacks caused by it. And the angiogram procedure where you put dye in the heart at yep. that time, that it could cause bolus things to move around in your body. So it was a not, it yep. was quite a morbid. And it, it couldn't get published. It eventually got published after four years. Right? So this was another thing. It was an operation that came in. It was obviously good to do. Yep. It, it, it became the thing. Yep. And it doesn't work. It's a bit like, isn't it, you know, only 30 years ago, approximately, we were told to scrap our petrol cars, go for diesel cars because yes. they're better for the environment. And then now it's completely the opposite. Diesel cars are actually the, the pits Terrible, of the planet yes. uh, and causing problems. So now they give us money to ditch our diesel cars. So a, a complete turnaround, yes, 180 yes. degrees. So here's the question for you then. So we, yeah, statins, if we don't believe statins stop us from, uh, well, first of all, if we're not sure cholesterol is related to heart attacks or not, and if statins are just about lowering cholesterol, will we at some stage in the future have a complete U-turn and we actually, for so many years, we were all being subscribed statins and it was just wrong? That's the first question. And I'd like to ask you, if that is the case, how many of your patients that you see daily do you prescribe statins to? Right. Two questions. First question is, I personally believe the downsides of statins I'll add one other thing. I think okay. statins do have a benefit in high-risk patient, patients. It's quite a small benefit. I personally think it's probably not worth it, but people can make their own minds up about risk and things. That and that's that like 300 to 1 chance the numbers is, yeah. needed to treat. It's, if for secondary prevention, the odds are, are different. It depends what you measure. But also I think they have a different effect, which is that they reduce the risk of blood clots. And interestingly, I just read a paper saying that they, they reduce the risk of deep venous thrombosis, for mm-hmm. instance. They have a different effect, a bit like aspirin. So they don't work by lowering cholesterol. They work in a different way. Setting that aside, so therefore the entire cholesterol hypothesis is actually, although it seems to have never been stronger, is nonsense. So taking things to lower people's cholesterol is nonsense. So we should just stop doing this. Um, I wrote a paper along with another group, the the, the most downloaded paper last year for, um, for one of the major publishers, where we said that a raised LDL, a high bad cholesterol mm-hmm. level, is associated with an increased life expectancy in people over the age of 50, 55. Oh, say that again. Say that again. Because right. that's the opposite of what we think. It's isn't the it? opposite of what you're told. Right? Right. If you looked at all the data, so we said 
Because well, it's LDL because that's bad cholesterol. Because yeah. there's been another one. We did one on cholesterol that said the higher your cholesterol level is, the longer you will live yeah. once you have reached the age of about 55. It's difficult because every yeah. every study does different ages. Yeah. So we said around about 55. Yeah. So then we said, okay, well, let's look at the data on LDL. Yeah. Specifically, there's less data because less people have looked at that specific lipoprotein level yeah. with regard to then life expectancy and the ldl just for, for those that are listening that aren't sort of medically trained the ldl the the low density lipoprotein is the one we're told is the, is bad, the bad one, one. that's okay. what's called bad one that absorbed into your arteries that's yeah. the story anyway so we looked at that and we didn't well we tried to not come to it with preconceived ideas although yeah. we, our preconceived ideas were clear from other papers we'd written yeah but we got all the data that we could in and because and 95 to 99 percent of heart attacks occur in the elderly, so that's yep. where it's important. And what we found was that basically the people with higher LDL levels lived longer <laughs> than people with lower LDL levels. Amazing. And that all of the data, I mean, some of it was some of the individual studies were, were not significant one way or the other. Yep. But in general terms, in fact, as the older you get, there's been studies in over 85s, really, the, the very elderly, that it, it becomes increasingly important. I don't think it's causal one way or the other. Yeah. I think a high LDL or cholesterol level is 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 usually a sign of good health. So that it's not that A causes, the A causing B causing C, yeah. causes, the whole thing is confusing in some ways. But the, the worst thing is if your LDL or cholesterol level starts falling. Yeah. That starts to happen to you. Boom. Even the Framingham study, which is held up as a proof of the cholesterol hypothesis, yeah. if you look at that study and they did it, they measured people's cholesterol at the start of the study, they measured yeah. it over years and years and years, and they found that if your cholesterol level fell over the first 14 years of your study, mm -hmm. from 1948 to 1966 or whatever it was, then your rate of heart disease went up for the next 18 years. Oh. A one millimole per litre drop in cholesterol in the first 14 years Increased your risk of dying of a heart attack. This is a relative risk increase. It's still quite impressive. 540%. <laughs> so if your cholesterol level fell, yep. it's a bit like the Ansel Keys study. Yep. Cholesterol level fell, yep. heart disease rate went up. And yet this study is still held out as an example of a support of the cholesterol hypothesis. Like, Isn't that uh, insane? Everything is twisted around into yeah. the most. It is like reality is bent to 180 degrees here, because yeah. we're told one thing, and when you look at the data, it says this is the opposite of the thing that we're told. Now, when I'm talking about the increased risk of higher or lower LDL levels in the elderly, these are again, in absolute terms, pretty minute. Yeah. Until the levels reach ridiculous levels, mm -hmm. but it's there. Yeah. I mean, what I'd say to people is forget forget your LDL level. Yeah. The evidence says. It is completely unimportant. And, and for the uh, for the consumers watching or listening that aren't medically trained, just remember that cholesterol is vital for life. If we don't have cholesterol, all our cells become jelly, and we end up like a piece, well, we end up like a piece of jelly or a fat blob because you know there's no structure to the cells without cholesterol. Well, well and I mean the irony is, of course, we're all told to eat stanols. Plant stanols are healthy. Plant stanol. If I showed you a diagram, and I did in, mm -hmm. in the book. If you looked at a, a chemical diagram of a stanol and a chemical diagram of cholesterol, I'm going to guarantee, if I spot the ball, you would not spot the difference. Mm -hmm. I know there's a difference in there. Mm -hmm. It's a double bond on, on the third ring. But anyway, because stanols are, are what plants use yeah. to maintain the integrity of their cell mm -hmm. walls, cholesterol is what 
animals use mm -hmm. to maintain the integrity of our cell membranes. Mm -hmm. And either way, the cells cannot exist and function without it. All right. cells require it. Yep. Neurons in particular need vast amounts of it. So it, as you say, it's absolutely critical. It's critical to your brain function. Yep. And yet we have people saying that it prevents Alzheimer's. What? Having none of the most vital substance your brain actually, so vital yep. that your brain synthesizes it itself yep. within cells in the brain yep. because it can't get it from the bloodstream. Yep. And, and without it, your yep. brain can't work. And synapses are almost entirely made from cholesterol. Huh. Wow. And memory is synapses. And thinking is synapses. And then we're told that cholesterol, which makes up your synapses yep. and your neurons, is bad for your brain. It's crazy, and I think that's for another one of our podcasts, which we are going to do with you very, very shortly. I want, we've got final two questions for you. What should the public do, and I'm holding up for those that are listening on the podcast, when they read a front-page headline in a newspaper that says something along the lines of, statins really do save lives, and they go on to quote statistics, and they go on to quote numbers. Let's see if we can quickly find some of those numbers. 8,000 number of lives could be saved by statins was the, the sub-headline here. Yes. And why statins, another headline here, why statins for over 75s are a life saver. Saver. What should we do as a public well, when we read those headlines well, in newspapers? Well, read my blog. <laughs> <laughs> because that study was, it's, it's incredible because half of the studies they quoted at, that they used, yep. and this is from the group in Oxford, half of them included nobody over the age of 75. Even though that's what they're talking that's about. That's the headline, yeah. yeah. So the majority of studies actually had nobody over 75 in them. <laughs> and, and Zoe Harkin, who we both know, then looked yep. at it. And actually, there was no alteration in life expectancy or lives saved or overall mortality. No extended yeah. life expectancy, and they even though it's... No, they claimed, they made a claim that was not supported by the data in their own paper. Say that again, sorry. <laughs> well, basically, they just made it up. They made it up. They made it up. This is one of the biggest, I won't say it is for fear of being sued, but it's one of our biggest leading newspapers yes. in the UK, uh, one of the most read ones. If you read it, you'd go, well, it must be the truth because it's in black and white, yeah. it's written uh, down. Well, we've both written to the authors of this paper and asked them for an explanation of their findings and they have refused to reply thus far because their data do not support what they've stated. I mean, to that extent, that is a direct yep. piece of misinformation. Complete misinformation. Look, here's the thing at home. If you ever, if you're the sort of person you read a headline and it worries you, don't let it worry you if it's in a newspaper. First of all, if you are the sort of person that worries things and, and you're fearful of things and you're worried about cancer or you're worried about this, you have to buy Dr. Malcolm Kendrick's book, Doctrine Data, because you'll never read a headline ever again. And you'll, you'll say, well, where was the clinical trial? Where was, what statistics are you using? Was it randomized? Was it controlled? Was it interventional? Was it monitored? And the answer is normally at least one, two, three, or four of those things are missing, or in this case, completely made up. My final question for you, Malcolm, is what, what would you like to be your legacy at the end? That's what I ask all doctors that come and see us. What, what legacy? Statue outside the Houses of Parliament. Yeah, yeah that'd be nice. Yeah. Be it was problem. me looking across the horizon. Back of a five-pound note. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, well, maybe ten or maybe. Um, no, I think, I don't, and in a way, I'm not sure why I do this. Uh, you know, people who knew me when I was younger would say, here's a man that likes to go to the pub, <laughs> have a laugh with his yeah. mates, and 
and, and, and I still do. Yeah, I sorry, and so I didn't. I never saw myself as a as a as a, as a kind of vengeful sort of character trying to change the world. But I, I suppose you just kind of think this is nonsense, and and then you get into it and you think, well, it's the old expression: if not if not you, who? Yep. If not now, when? Yeah. And you think, well, I can't really give up on this now because yep. I think it is of such importance that at least I can feel I have. If it, all I've done is inspire somebody else to make the change that needs to be made, if all I've done is helped a thousand people to, to understand this stuff, and then I say I was, you know, that that's it. I'm, I'm not. I, I'd I'd love to see statins and the whole cholesterol and the whole nonsense that's built around that be dismantled, yep. got rid of, blown up, whatever word you want. It, will it happen in my lifetime? I'd like to think so. Will it happen eventually? It must do. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know when. So what would my legacy be? I'd like to be seen as a part of a group of individuals who've tried to get the truth out there because because otherwise, you know, people are. I think people are being harmed. People are being badly harmed. Well, uh, look, part of your legacy, from the bottom of my heart, if I hadn't <laughs> read your book, I would be taking statins right now, probably having side effects, probably not you know, doing the exercise I need and lifestyle changes that mm. you need. Um, so from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much. And from the listeners on the podcast and those watching us on, on the webcam, I hope you've had uh, really enjoyed the hour. And uh, till the next time, great seeing you. Thank Thanks you very Steve. much. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed the podcast and would also like to watch it online, you can find a webcam version on YouTube or the Primal Living website, www.primalliving.com. The Fat and Furious podcast is the perfect introduction to helping you and those you love live happier and healthier for longer. And if you are a fan of the series, then please let your friends and family know. They'll truly thank you for it. And so will we. Until next time, live.